Welcome to the Radio Book Club, a collaboration between KGNU and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Maeve Conran with KGNU. As always, my co-host Arsen Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore joining me at, I have to say, a packed house here at the bookstore. If uh, we had to television, you could get a sense of the excitement in the room and the amount of love that's here for our author. So to introduce our author, Arson, who have we been reading for the month of March? We've been reading Stephen Graham Jones. His new book is Don't Fear the Reaper. And it's a sequel to My Heart is a Chainsaw, which we also did here on the Radio Book Club. So welcome, Stephen. Thanks for having me. It's always a thrill being here, talking to you all. As Arson said, uh, we're here tonight to talk about Don't Fear the Reaper, mm-hmm. which is the uh, sequel to the first mm-hmm. book in the trilogy, the mm-hmm. Indian Lake trilogy. So we are very pleased to have Jade Daniels return. And I know you spoke about this, but I think it's worth reminding mm-hmm. uh, listeners in the audience about who Jade is, why she is such a special place in your heart, because I know that you have real affection for this character. So we're all delighted Jade is back. Who is she and why did you want to bring her back for a second to go around? Um, you know, I never planned on, I planned on My Heart is a Chainsaw being a standalone novel. I didn't write it as the first installment in a trilogy. And what happened was, as I worked through revisions with my editor, Joe Monti at Saga, we got towards the end of it and he had me change the title, which hurt a lot because I liked my original title, which was not nearly as good as My Heart is a Chainsaw. And, and um, what was that? Lake Access Only. He said that's not a horror title. He's right, you know. Um, <laughs> but I still argued. <laughs> and, um, and then we got to the end and he said, you know, what if, what if like somebody lived? And Because um, at the original ending of this book, it was Hamlet. Everybody's dead on the floor. And um, even Jade. And, and I said, man, I've been writing this book for a long time. Uh, these characters are made to die. And he said, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I think that the readers have invested like 400-odd pages of their time and they might want a little payback on that investment, you know, more or less. And, but Joe, he never tells me what to do. He just, like, extends possibilities. And then, he, like when a parent tells you something, you know, like they say, I know you'll do the right thing, you know, that, that kind of thing. And, um, and sure enough, after about three or three weeks, I was like, well, well dang it, I'll, I'll, I'll open up a side file and I'll do the ending he wants just to prove to him that it doesn't work. And so I did it to prove to him that it doesn't work, and it worked wonderfully, you know? And, <laughs> and it, I can't, I can't like overemphasize how wonderful it is to work with smart people, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Especially when you're not that smart yourself, because it, it, it allows me to look like I know what I'm doing, and I rarely know what I'm doing. But so then, suddenly, there were people left over at the end of my heart as a chainsaw, and, and the publisher and my agent said, all right, what book do you want to do next? And I said, I'm going to do the second um, chainsaw book. And they said, what? And I said, yeah, it's a trilogy. It's been a trilogy all along. And, um, <laughs> Pay attention. Yeah, they bought it. And, and as for Jade, Jade is 17 years old, high school senior. She's an outcast in her family. She lives with her father. Her mother is not with her. She is outcast at her high school. She does not fit in with any of the social groups. She's outcast in the community of Proof Rock, where she lives. Proof Rock is a little town of maybe 2,500, 3,000 people, 8,000 feet up the mountain in Idaho. And it's right on the shores of Indian Lake, this reservoir. Across, across the lake is a development going up from the like 1% of the 1%ers. The, the Elon Musks of the world are building a little gated community over there that you can only get to by the water, which is why it was called Lake Access only originally. And Jade has a lot of resentment towards these um, rich people coming in and kind of um, colonizing her community, her place. And you know, when I turned this novel into my editor, he read it through and he said, oh, it's a novel about gentrification. And so I like, opened up a tab and went over and looked up gentrification to be sure I understood what it was. <laughs> and, uh, 
Turns out it's just colonization on a smaller scale, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> I was talking about colonization, that gentrification works too. And um, Jade, being so alone out in the cold, away from the warmth of people, has had to insulate herself. And what she found to insulate herself with were slasher movies, the whole slasher genre. Everything she sees, she, see, she sees through a slasher lens. She's, um, she can be quite imposing. If, if, she, if you and her are in the same place, she's going to back you into a corner and give you three and a half lectures on slashers. And it's not going to be a happy experience for anybody involved, really. Maybe for her, but no. And in My Heart is a Chainsaw, she recognizes the opening beats of a slasher, and she tries to ring the alarm. Nobody believes her. It happens anyway. Big massacre on the water. And then four years later, in Don't Fear the Reaper, She's just processing out of um, detention facilities down in Boise, Idaho, because this being the real world, slashers have consequences. You can't just lay a lot of people on the ground and expect to start the new story for fun. You know, um, There's actual consequences. People have lingering injuries. Jade has lingering le legal difficulties. And she comes back in December in the middle of the worst blizzard in a century, which um, Look, we keep saying that term, but we get the worst blizzard in the century, like every three years now, it seems like. I know. And um, she gets to Proof Rock at the same time that Dark Mill South, this legendary serial killer, has been in a prison transport going up the mountain, and an avalanche takes out his convoy, and he gets free. So they hit town, they hit town at the same time, and they're on a collision course. And there's going to be a lot of bodies on the ground. Like Randy, like Randy Meeks says in Scream, the sequel has to be bloodier, a higher body count, and more elaborate kills, you know? So I tried to do all that. Well, one thing I thought was interesting is it tells you right on the back of the book, mm -hmm. in 36 hours, there's going to be 20 bodies. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. um, to come right out and say that, you know, I guess what was the thinking behind that rather than let the reader discover as they go along? Is I think that in a novel like Don't Fear the Reaper, you can give away the statistics because there's still a lot of secrets buried that aren't on the back cover, you know? There's a lot of reveals that are yet to happen. So Dark Mill South, yeah. he, he's Native American. Yes, yeah. And um, so him and Jade are kind of set up for an interesting uh, mm -hmm. uh, dance, so, so to speak. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, there'll be some speculation that because Jade herself is Blackfeet, she might be the only one who can push back effectively against this guy. Mm -hmm. One of the things I thought was really interesting about him, and we'll have you read a little passage, yeah. though, is... He's he's been killing people all along. He's got he's got like fifty kills under his belt, you know. And but a lot of the speculation is he's trying to avenge the thirty eight Dakota uh, warriors who were uh, executed by Abraham Lincoln in eighteen sixty two, I believe. And I thought, you know, the way it comes out in the book, it's it's you know, Lincoln is held up as such a hero in America, but this is a really terrible fact of history. That, yeah. That yeah. He, He's not a hero to everybody. Yeah, no, no, definitely not. That's kind of the American like um, process. We we whitewash everything and make it clean and acceptable, you know. But um, but no, like especially in the West, I feel like every boot print you leave in the ground, if you come back to it in a couple of minutes, there's going to be blood welling up from those tread marks, you know, because um everything out here is built on blood, and we like to pretend it's not, but um some people remember that that it's there, you know. Talk a little bit more about justice as an overall concept in Slasher and yeah. this sort of quest for vengeance because Dark Mill South, as Arson said, he's uh, aiming to seek vengeance or justice maybe for these 38 who were uh, killed. That's kind of an underlying theme. I mean, for people who aren't necessarily 
I don't want to say fans of Sasha yeah. or maybe just haven't yeah. been paying attention. That yeah. is actually a theme. It's yeah. not just random violence. There's often this quest that centers on some kind of justice. Yeah, it's a big revenge arc. I think revenge, the difference in revenge and justice, as near as I can tell, is it depends on what side you're on, you know? Like, it feels like justice to you, but it feels like revenge to somebody else. And the, the slasher is a justice fantasy. It's, it's the idea that you can pull a prank, like an entitled group of kids can pull a prank on somebody on the sixth grade playground, pull their pants down or something, and then at prom, a few years later, a spirit of vengeance, possibly that kid who got pants on the playground is going to rise up and punish those people. And not punish them by pulling their pants down, but by cutting their heads off, you know? Because slashers are brutally fair. They, they, they take no prisoners. They don't slap your wrist. They cut your wrist off and slap you with it, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, I think we've been in, we've been kind of fascinated with the slasher these last few years because over and over we see people at podiums doing terrible things and just walking away with no 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 guilt and no punishment. They don't pay for what they've done. And in a world that we sense as being that distinctly unfair, I think it's quite natural that we are drawn to stories in which we can engage a justice fantasy. Like, I'm not saying I want to live in a slasher world, because in a slasher world, you can get eviscerated for littering, and that, that doesn't seem quite balanced, you know? But nevertheless, the idea that there is a place that's fair is very appealing to us. Can, it's appealing to me. I can imagine political slasher as a subgenre of oh, the yeah, subgenre. For sure, for sure. <laughs> so, you know, horror is, is really on an upswing. I mean, I know the films have been much more consistent, but. Sometime in the mid to late 90s, we got rid of our horror section. It was 80% Stephen King, 8% Clive Barker, 8% Dean Koontz, and maybe another 4% of something else. And we're like, that doesn't really make sense. But in the last five years or so, the genre has kind of exploded. And, you know, I, I was starting to wonder about why, why is this? Is there greater anxiety and, like, Jade seeking comfort? We're all seeking comfort in this thing? You know, somebody who's writing this and really um, was before the wave, really, but now you're kind of, you're leading the wave, sort of. What, what, is your, what are your thoughts on why has this really exploded uh, in the literary scene? I think, I think there's maybe two reasons. One reason is um, we feel the past few years, especially in the pandemic, that we're slogging through a dark tunnel, like with terrible things all around us. We can't even see it, you know? Um, the end is near, it always feels like. But what engaging horror stories can teach us or model for us is that if we keep putting one foot after the other, we're finally, finally going to see that speck of light at the end of the tunnel. And if we keep moving towards it, it'll get bigger and bigger. And that's the kind of message we need in the pandemic, I think. You know, that, that there, is, there is something waiting for us on the other side. And also, another, the second reason is I feel like, what is this, 2016, Jordan Peele does Get Out, and then 2017, Victor Laval does The Ballad of Black Tom. I think that was like a one-two punch that kind of served to signal to the market, the audience, the critics, that we're, the horror is not just some nightmare carnival out at the edge of the light. Doing, we're not just doing blood gags for each other. We're, we're in dialogue with the world. We're serving as a funhouse mirror for society's anxieties and fears and paranoias and certainties and suspicions. And so we've been kind of pulled into the light. And 
it's cool. Well, I mean, horror's not withering in the light or anything. Um, it is a different place for us to be because horror, for a long time, we got solidarity by being the outsiders, you know? And so now we're kind of a little bit in the in-group and we don't really know what are the rules here, you know? <laughs> You're the cool kids now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. one of the new writers is Eric Worth, who's also yeah. from Denver, from yeah. Colorado, who's written this incredible mm. uh, new book as well. And she was a guest here at the, yeah. at the bookstore and the book club. And she's also uh, Native American and she brings those themes into mm -hmm. her book too as of course you do and, and of course with jade and dark mill south two main characters are both native american mm -hmm. and there have been just so many tropes of representation mm -hmm. of native americans mm -hmm. in horror yeah that it's the the burial ground mm -hmm. or it's this sort of mythical mm -hmm. you know medicine person and you know mm -hmm. very one-dimensional mm -hmm. very stereotypical and mm -hmm. so talk a little bit about what you're doing and, you know, folks like Erica, but especially yeah. yourself paving the way to have full representation um, in horror, but really just in literature. I guess I'm trying, I am always trying to take the knees out of things that, you know, I oppose. And that idea of the um, haunted Indian burial ground is one of the things I want to push back against. So in My Heart is a Chainsaw, I propose that it's not a haunted Indian burial ground, it's a haunted Christian burial ground, you know? And, um, and also, as far as just the slasher goes, the slasher is usually after the cheerleading squad, it seems like, basically a high school cheerleading squad. And so I thought, let's turn that upside down. And this time the slasher is after the 50-year-old-plus um, gentrified set, you know? Um, and um, let me think, I'm getting the question suddenly. Oh, oh. just about uh, representation oh, yeah, of Native yeah, Americans. Yeah. In, in, not just horror, but literature. Yeah, no, and... The, and yeah, you're right, there is always a medicine man up on a, on a mesa who wants to give some sacred knowledge to everybody, but um, too often in both cinema and, and novel and fiction, um, American Indian people were used like we're coin drop characters, like you walk up to us and put a quarter in our mouth and we give you some sacred knowledge and then we disappear, we fade out of the scene. And that's always, you know, it's quite insulting to be disposable um, like that. And so, you know, I actually get approached by a lot of filmmakers. They want me to consult on their screenplays, their movies. And they say, we've got this little beat in the middle where they go get some knowledge from this dude in a teepee. And I'm like, yeah, that, that's the problem already. <laughs> you know? yeah. Try to just talk them out of that to do something totally different, maybe a whole different movie, you know? So I was wondering if you could read a, sure. a bit. We're gonna, you're going to read a little bit of where we're, kind of we're introduced to Dark Mill South. All right, Dark Mill South. And you know that, I should tell you all, the name Dark Mill South comes from my persistent mishearing of Jerry Reed's song, Amos Moses. Do you know Amos Moses, that song? It's a good one. I listen to it probably twice a day, <laughs> like for the past 40 years. And there's a line in it where I think he says, Doc Millsap. Doc Millsap, he raised up a child who could eat up his weight in groceries. That's Amos Moses. And for my whole life, I've misheard Doc Millsap as Dark Mill South. And so about three years ago, I was searching up the lyrics to it because I wanted to get the lyrics right for some reason. And I couldn't find it. And so I quit typing in Dark Mill South and the lyrics popped right up. And I realized I'd been hearing it wrong my whole life, you know. So I finally was able to use it. All right, Dark Mill South. In the summer of 2015, a rough beast slouched out of the shadows and into the waking nightmares of an unsuspecting world. His name was Dark Mill South, but that wasn't the only name he went by. Cowpoking through Wyoming, working the feed line as they used to call it, he'd been the East Fork Strangler. Not because he ever hung his hat in the East Fork bunkhouse or rode their fences, but because he'd somehow come into possession of one of their 246 branding irons and had taken the time with each victim to get that brand going red to leave his mark. For that season, he'd been propping his dead up behind snow fences, always facing north. It wasn't a Native American thing. Dark Mill South was Ojibwa out of Minnesota. It was, he would say later, just polite after all he put them through. 
His manner is extended to six men and women that winter of 2013. Come spring melt, the East Fork Strangler lobbed his branding iron into the chug water and drifted up into Montana, where the newspapers dubbed him the 90i Slasher. It was supposed to have been the I-90 Slasher since Dark Mill South's reign of terror had extended up and down I-90 from Billings to Butte, but the intern typing it into the crawl on the newsfeed had flipped it around to 90i. By that evening, 90i had gone viral, and so was another boogeyman born. That's Stephen Graham Jones reading from his new novel, Don't Fear the Reaper. It's the second book in the Indian Lake trilogy. And he is our guest today at the Radio Book Club, a collaboration between KGNU and the Boulder Bookstore. Um, so Dark Mouth South, he ultimately gets sort of his freedom from this, you know, prison mm-hmm. convoy mm-hmm. through snow, right? There's an avalanche mm-hmm. and snow is a huge thing. There's the blizzard. Mm-hmm. This is all very much set in winter, very much the opposite from the previous book, mm-hmm. which was a summertime one. So talk a little bit about the weather. You know, obviously it plays a significant role in the plot, but just also in terms of visual and, and what that adds to the story. It was neat writing a sequel. I'd never done a sequel like this before because I was able to like parachute down into Indian Lake and it was already built. I didn't have to like figure out what was where. And so I could hit the ground running and go. But I also knew that the audience from the readers from My Heart is a Chainsaw, they knew Proof Rock in the Summer. They didn't. And so I wanted to make it both familiar and alien. And the best way I could think to do that was to drape everything in snow. And just mechanically, I so love having that lake frozen because it's so much easier to go places, you know? Um, and my heart is a chainsaw. They kept having to run around or get in a boat. And I'm like, that's so much trouble. But now they can just go across the ice, you know? <laughs> there's, um, in, in the book, there's a, a kind of a haunting white elk that shows up. Mm-hmm. And um, you, you used, you know, elk and deer and things like mm-hmm. this in your previous books as well. But... Talk about that white elk and what does that signify in this book and how do the characters react to it? You know, it was really lucky, that white elk, because I didn't have any plans for a white elk to be in this novel. But before I wrote one day, I was looking at some feed, news feed somewhere, and I saw that somebody up in Canada, I believe, had popped a white elk. Like, you know, when, a, when there's a white elk in a community, everybody kind of knows about it and protects it, you know, kind of like the um, elk we used to have here in Boulder over on Mapleton, you know, I'm like, and people care for it or they, they don't want people to shoot it, but sure enough, somebody shot this white elk, and, and that didn't make me very happy, because I don't think white elk should be shot. And so I put it directly in the novel, and I thought, I just dropped it in, I thought, maybe this will be fun. You know, maybe something will happen with this, and sure enough, something happened with it, you know? With my novels, my writing, I never have idea one where it's gonna go. Even with Don't Fear the Reaper, I was probably 50% through it before I was like, you know, that's the killer, because I, I, never, I never know, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you have us guessing for sure. Yeah. Um, one, one thing I thought was really distinct about this book is how many different points of view. I mean, I guess you're always in third person, but we're seeing through things through, you know, so many different characters' eyes. And, and some of my favorites were the, the like Kimmy, uh, Jade's mother, gets a couple scenes. And um, Stacy Graves gets a scene from the bottom of the lake, basically. You know, so t- talk about that that why you wanted to have this kind of kaleidoscope of characters in this book, kind of telling it from their side of the point of view. A big part of it was that, um, I guess I'll have to back up really far, but the last version of My Heart is a Chainsaw before the final version, which got published, was a completely different novel. It was told in three parts. In the first third of it, it was Jade narrating. The second third, it was Hardy narrating. And the third third, it was Letha Mondragon narrating. And at the time, Letha was a YouTube makeup tutorial star. And to 
to get her voice down, I had to watch endless hours of makeup tutorials on YouTube, and I learned about like concealer and all like the stuff you. Yeah, that that was a big thing contouring and all the different sponges. It was like amazing. It was another world. <laughs> but but that's why Letha has that moisturizing regimen that saves your life. And my heart is a chainsaw. <laughs> you know, it all got erased. But um, well, I gave that version to friends, and they read it, and they said, ah, eh, whatever, another Stephen novel. And um. And, but they said it was really, we were really bummed when we had to leave Jade's voice because well, they liked Jade a lot. And, and I thought, well, that's, that's the advice I'm going to take. I'm going to rewrite this novel where Jade is at the center of everything. And I rewrote it and it became the, the book that got published. But um, I was worried going into the second book that um, Jade, number one, Jade is a very like imposing personality. You know, she, she, she's going to be in your face. And I was worried that it might be possible to have too much Jade. And, I, at the same time, this may be just a different way of saying the same thing. I was worried that too much spotlight would burn her, you know. And also, I wanted this to be a, a novel that dealt with or confronted the trauma a whole community suffers and faces and works through. And the best way I could think to do that was to look at it through the community's eyes, to to jump to jump heads, as it were. And and luckily, I had just read reread um, Larry Mercury's Lonesome Dove, and that's what that's kind of his model how he does stuff. And in Lonesome Dove, I realized I didn't realize it's the first time through. It took me my second read to figure this out. Every he has like I forget how many parts there are four parts six parts something like that. Every new part starts with a new point of view character, and I thought that's a really cool structuring device. So I did that in Don't Fear the Reaper. Every new chapter starts with a, a new character, and it's it, I mean it, you don't have to like cue into that to to understand the novel or enjoy it. I don't think, but it was a really good structuring device for me while I was writing it to always know that here comes a new person. I've got to make them real immediately. It was really fun. Well, you mentioned uh, Lita there and yeah. her makeup tutorials yeah. on, on YouTube and her skill, skincare regime. Mm -hmm. you know, she's back. And, but I want to talk about Lita and the final girl concept, because mm -hmm. there are probably a lot of people listening who don't necessarily understand yeah. what that is. And I want to give a shout out to a couple of folks in the audience who have a T-shirt saying Jade Daniels is my final girl. <laughs> so we'll talk about what a final girl is and why Jade herself doesn't feel like she's the final girl, because she identifies Lita because of this notion of purity and kind of almost mm. innocence where Jade, obviously, to all the readers, is the final girl. So what yeah. is a final girl and why does Jade not see herself as one? A final girl is in the slasher. A final girl is the, um, the only one with the power to take down the slasher, basically. They're usually out of the slasher's like purview of justice, but basically they're, they're the silver bullet to the slasher. They're the, the thing that can put a, a cap on this cycle of violence. And that's a, I think final girls are a wonderful model for all, all of us to engage because what they're teaching us is how to resist bullies, how to push back against that bully on the playground who might be Jason Voorhees or somebody um, in a hockey mask. And that's, I think that's wonderful. However, the slasher has been told so many times since, I don't know, since John Carpenter and Deborah Hill did it in 78 or Black Christmas in 74, wherever you want to put the origin point, that... Um, the final girl has been put on higher and higher pedestals until she's become this princess warrior, angel scholar, person who bottle feeds kittens. You know, like the, she can do no wrong. She is just a, a shining example of what it means to be a human. And the problem with that is when the final girl is so perfect, she becomes a space that we see ourselves not measuring up to. We can't inhabit that space. 
in order to learn how to push back against our bullies. And Jade, being so invested in the slasher, has also subscribed to this um, model of the final girl, where she is this perfect angel warrior princess. And she, she knows that she does not match up to that for a lot of reasons. Who can match up to that, really? And, and so she never sees herself as final girl material. She identifies Lita Mondragon, who moved to town with the Terranovans, the rich people, as obviously the final girl, because she seems to exhibit every one of the qualities that Jada's, you know, identified with the final girl. But um, what I hope to keep pushing is the idea that being a final girl is not about what you are on the outside or what's happened to you. A final girl is who you are on the inside. And if Jade has been on the inside, she'll never admit it probably, but she, she's tough. You know, she, she insists on herself and she pushes back against bullies and she'll fight for people other than herself too. Do you see that concept of the final girl changing in horror? Like, is it diversifying? Is it becoming a little more, you know, where different different looking people can become the final girl mm -hmm. from where we were five or ten years ago? Or, yeah, or are you? I think I think it is. Like, I mean, Jade is the first final girl of color. There have been, there have been like two or three more before her, I think. But um, I think we're going to see more and more of that happening. You know, and the final girl does not have to be this um, perfect example of a human anymore. Um, when, like, really, if you look at the slashers from the 80s as compared to the slashers of the 90s, in the 80s, the final girls made it through the night, through 90% of the night, almost on luck, and then the last 10%, they turned into fighters, and they turned to face their pursuer. But um, in the 90s, the final girls came into the slasher with issues, like um, like Sydney Prescott is grieving her mother's murder and scream. And, and then this horror adventure, this cycle of violence, allows this final girl with issues to work through her issues by the end of the story. And it's, I think it's more complete storytelling um, in, the, in the 90s than it was in the 80s. I know we have less iconic slashers in the 90s than we did in the 80s, but I think the stories are a little bit better. And um, so we've already seen the final girl change a little, and we've seen her change some more as well. If, if we can accept that the final girl is sometimes in a horror movie that's not a slasher, like um, you're next or ready or not, um, we can see the final girl as someone who doesn't start out mousy and bookish. She is someone who starts out tough, like Aaron in your next. That, that woman is, she, you don't want to mess with her because she's going to shove something down your throat and out the back of your head, you know? And, and we love her for that, I think, for her, her um, immediate awareness of danger. And that really is the, to me, that's the central characteristic of a final girl is she's vigilant. She's aware of her surroundings. Like all, the, all of her friends who get picked off one by one, they don't care about that noise out in the bushes or why that light over there is going on and off. The final girl, she looks and she looks again and she's like, what is that? You know? And, and, and that way, she is, she's, she's telling us all to be careful when you're walking through a parking garage at 2 in the morning because we should be careful. You know? So this is the second in a trilogy. Yes. What's coming next? Uh, number three, and I turned it in in August, and I wish I could tell you all the title, but the publisher won't let me say it yet. I can't even say when it's coming out yet, but it's done. And my editor has told me that the ending works, which is the important part, you know. And so far, his notes are just, he wants to keep one person alive, because I killed a whole lot of people. And that was the hard part in the third book. I had to keep a list, because it's... I, I would try to trot somebody out on the page, and I'd look back, and I'd be, oh, yeah, they're dead. I can't do that. <laughs> do you have a spreadsheet with all the body count? I, I don't, I don't want to, I'm not going to give anything away, but I felt when I read it, there's a couple characters at the end of this that you're not sure if they're alive or dead at yeah. the end. 
And I wonder, you know, were you able to use that? Or did you think, yeah, maybe I'll just make it that they don't come back. Or maybe, <laughs> you know, I thought they were alive, yeah. and now they're dead. Or I thought they were dead, now they're alive. Because it is ambiguous. Yeah. And you do have some leeway, it seems like. I, and I tried to do it. That was kind of intentional to give myself that leeway. Because I had no idea what was coming in book three. My rule that I gave myself for writing these, this second book was I've got to give everything away. I can't hold anything back. Because I think the audience realizes when you're withholding, when you're saving it for the next installment. And, and so... I had I've, I told myself run that tank as dry as you can, and then I, the kind of follow-ups I like, kind of sequels and third in the trilogies, are the, those installments where a different creative team comes in because of you know market pressure or whatever, and they sift through the um, ash of the last installment, and they very delicately try to pick out a narrative thread and draw it out slowly until it can become a story, you know, and that that's what I like most, and so I think that. Like me running the tank dry and just killing everybody I can and don't fear the reaper, and you know that that made me have to reach deep into that ash pile and to find a thread. And it was really fun. And I think that hopefully leaves the reader unable to guess what's coming next because the slasher audience is very cued into the conventions and tropes. They can, it's like their Vladimir prop in the morphology of the folk tale. They can identify two or three essential or like formative moments, events, characters at the beginning of the story. And they can then guess how it's going to play out over the next like 15 beats. And the trick is when you're writing a slasher, you have to stay, you have to stay just a half step ahead of the audience, and so you have to keep them off balance. And the way I can keep them off balance the best is um, to let them think everything is used up. You know? So yet to be named. Well, it is named. It's yet named, to be yeah. revealed. When yeah. is it coming out? I can't tell you that I either, but it won't be that long. It won't okay. be that long. All right. Yeah. Well, hopefully you'll come back. It'll be your fifth turn. I know. At the I Radio Book so. Club. So, so we look forward to that. Thank well, you. we're going to say goodbye to our radio audience right now, mm -hmm. but encourage you to hop over to the podcast because we're going to continue our conversation with Stephen Graham Jones, answer questions from the audience. But as we always do at the end of each episode, we announce what we're reading for the next month. So we're into April, Arson. Who are yeah. we reading? We're going to read Go as a River by Shelley Reed. And it's uh, Colorado, set in Colorado. It's about a teen in the 1940s. It's a love story. There's some loss. But um, it's, it's a debut novel. And I think people are getting really excited about it around the state. Well, we look forward to that. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast of the Radio Book Club. From KGNU, I'm Maeve Conran. As always, my co-host, Arsene Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Maeve.